How are you, family? You doing okay? Go ahead and take your seats. Man, it's good to see you. Danielle and I have been off representing you in all sorts of ways and places. We've also taken some annual leave, which I know you'll forgive me for, uh, you know, having a holiday to stay sane every now and then. You, you will forgive me for that, won't you? Okay, just checking, just checking. But uh, it's been a good time. As you know, uh, we're reaching people in Darwin. We are having a, making an impact around the world. If you're new or visiting our church, Ben's my name. I get the joy of being the lead pastor of this incredible church. And at the moment, our church has uh, heard from God and we are taking steps to establish a ministry in Darwin. And what that means is out of every month, uh, every, sorry, out of every fortnight, Danielle and I spend about nine days in Alice Springs and about four or five days in Darwin getting that ministry going. So uh, we're doing a lot of coming and going at the moment. And uh, boy, it's great to be in Alice Springs. We were walk- I was walking through the car park the other day, looking at the blue sky, just thinking, why would anyone leave Alice Springs? Why would anyone that didn't get made to by the board of DLC to go up to Darwin to establish a Why would you choose to do that? No one would with a sane brain, that's for sure. What a great place. Oh, come on, friends. You got out of bed. If you're only on holidays or you're moving next week, you can be quiet. But come on, the rest of us, we've chosen to be here. The promised land, the middle of everywhere. God's own country. It's good to see you. It's good to see you. And it's good to see our Darwin friends online. Thank you for the photo you just sent me through. That was pretty cool. And uh, all of those who are joining us from elsewhere as well. If you're wondering uh, what, you know, what we're up to as a church, well, it's just very simple, that God has planted us in the heart of the nation. And we have a heart for the nations. We have a heart to see God's kingdom come and His will be done down our road and around our world. On our back wall, you'll see all of the major locations on our map of all of the major mission partnerships we have. And Danielle and I, a couple of weeks ago, we got to represent you in Thailand, traveling there to share with our field workers from all over the world. More than 150 field workers in more than 70 countries. And uh, we got to just encourage them on your behalf and say g'day and uh, get together, hear some field reports. There's amazing stuff happening. And uh, Pastor Mez and James were there from Timor-Leste day and they said to say g'day it's pretty cool so uh, thank you for releasing us and let's just keep on praying let's keep on doing this stuff together who can say amen you know I've just decided I'm not going to die wondering man I'm not going to die wondering I'm going to serve Jesus I'm going to go down fighting with my last breath if a truck runs over me my hands will be out there with my cold dead fingers saying I'm still chasing after my destiny in God how about you Well, I hope so, because actually none of us have a my destiny in God. We collectively have an our destiny in God. And we need each other, man. We're family, so we do it together. And uh, Jesus said, even if you just gave a prophet a drink of cold water in his name, you get the prophet's reward. That means you're doing it together. It takes a team. Everybody say amen to that. Awesome. This is Michael Carroll. When he was 19, he bought a one-pound lottery ticket. In the Australian exchange rate at the day, that cost him $2.50. That lottery ticket yielded a prize of 9.7 million British pounds, which in 2001, which is when this happened, translated to 25.2 million Australian dollars. Who'd just love that to happen for them? I reckon it's pretty cool, isn't it? Two bucks fifty, 25 million. Pretty cool, hey? Well, as you can see, Michael likes his jewellery. And he spent that money. He spent that money on alcohol, drugs, profligate, lavish living, having fun, going on trips, giving money away, smoking, snorting, drinking. He's got several kilograms of Mr. T around his neck. And within 12 years, his bank balance was zero. He got something of profound worth and blew it all away. You might remember this lady, Clarissa Dixon Wright. You'd remember from the photographs, maybe the cooking show, if you're a bit of a foodie, the show Two Fat Ladies, for which she later became famous. What you may not know about her is in the 1970s, she was the youngest woman in Britain to be admitted to the British Bar Association as a lawyer. Later uh, later in that season, her mother passed away, who was wealthy, and left her 2.8 million British pounds. Well, what did she do with that 2.8 British pounds? She discovered she really liked to party and she really liked to drink. She smoked, she snorted, she drank, she slept, she partied for 12 years. There seems to be something about the number 12, doesn't it? All the conspiracy theorists are, all right, take a year off if you get some lot, if you come into some cash. 
Within 12 years, not only had she become homeless and penniless, but she'd been disbarred from the Bar Association because of the problems related to her alcoholism. 12 years, 2.8 million pounds, boom, down to nothing. She, she inherited something of profound value. And she blew it away. Now, I know in this room, none of us are like that, are we? We would all listen to the cautionary tale and go, hey, man, you know, I don't know why you want to wear three kilograms of gold around your neck or something like that. Listen, this is what I've found. I've been a person for a while. And then I've been a pastor for, you know, a little bit less than that. I've been a father, a husband, I've been all those things, currently still am those things. And this is what I found. People have to be careful because we, we would look at the story of Michael and Clarissa and we would say, oh, as if. And yet every single one of us are capable of receiving things of profound value and being incredibly irresponsible with them. We're incredibly capable of blowing them away. Now, you might not have won the lottery. If you did, just listen to Josh's offering message. (coughs) You might not have had a wealthy relative pass away and leave you a vault full of cash. But the scripture says that if you and I are followers of Jesus, we come into a birthright. We come into something of profound, profound worth. And the title of my message today is, please, don't squander your birthright. Don't blow it. You know, the collective pages of Scripture goes on and on and on about this idea that we, when we say yes to the gospel, we are brought into God's family. We are brought into the run wonderful, loving, just, and beautiful rule and reign of Father God. We have a birthright. And, and the collective pages of Scripture, layer upon layer upon layer, explain to us the inheritance that we have in Jesus. Explain to us the riches we come into in the gospel. Have you ever heard the phrase... Easy come, easy go. It seems to be that there's a problem with humans that when something is gifted to us, it is so easy for us to devalue it, to neglect it, to blow it away. You know, if we just did a quick sample space, if we did a quick skim, let's have a look at some of the things that the Scriptures say about our birthright. Look at what John says. To everyone who received him, that's Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Think about that. It's not, oh, he made them children of God. He gave the right to become children of God. You know, as a pastor, so many people struggle to embrace their identity in Jesus and they still feel they have to pay off their debt to God or work up their own merit like the Buddhists or, you know, or, 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 or slave away so maybe they'll earn some divine favour. The, the, the birthright we come into in Jesus when we believe in his name, he gives us the right to be a child of God. That's inheritance language. That's birthright language. God gives you a profound gift. You have the right to be a child of God. You have the right to do it. You're you're welcome. You're welcome to the family. You're not tolerated. You're not put up with. No one's scowling over their shoulder to see you walk into worship. You have the right to be a child of God. You're going to parade through the streets of heaven one day going, this is my place. It's an idea of profound value, but some of us don't value it because imagine how our lives would be if every day when our feet hit the floor, we woke up and looked in the mirror and said, it's a good day because you're in it. You have the right to be a child of God. Every room you walk into, boom, it's a child of God walking into that room. Every problem, every conversation, every broken situation. Well, I don't just address this as any mere human. I address it with someone who has the right to be a child of Father God. Well, that would change the way we live. How about this one for Paul? He writes to the Ephesians, and this is just the first line of a 114-word-long sentence. Anyone who's done an education knows you're just not supposed to write sentences that long. You have to use this thing called punctuation. Stop every now and then. So people say that when, when I preach, just stop and take a breath every now and then. Oh, actually, just stop. They also say that. And Paul writes this, this is the first line. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. Everybody say has. 
He has blessed us with every, oh sorry, in the heavenly realms, with every spiritual blessing in Christ. I just wish God had blessed me. He's blessed you. I wish I could have my inheritance. He's given it to you. Oh, I just need, I need the Holy Spirit to come. God has blessed you with every spiritual blessing. Actually, it should be translated spirit blessing, capital S. Every blessing of the Holy Spirit is yours. In the first service, I explained that, but I ran out of time, so now I'm not going to explain it. You can get the podcast of the first service. With every spiritual, every, 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 if there's a fire in this room and I say everybody out, does that give anyone permission for like maybe just two or three of us to hang around? Every. Last time I checked my dictionary was a while ago because now you just Google. Every meant nothing not included. I have the right to be a child of God. I have been blessed with every spirit blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Man, imagine waking up tomorrow morning, heading off to your Monday Monday life. I'm walking through that door as a, someone with a right to be the child of God. Me and Daddy, we're coming. We're turning up, man. I, I, I turn up not just as a mere human, not just reliant on my own resources, not just reliant on my own biography and my own appetites and my own brokenness. I turn up to this place as someone blessed with every blessing of the Holy Spirit in heavenly places, man. Actually, Paul will go on in Ephesians to talk about how the church becomes the earthly manifestation of the heavenly reality. But that's not the topic of today's sermon. Oh, what about this one? He says that he, he aches for it to the Ephesians later in the chapter. Oh, I keep asking, he's praying for the Ephesians and listen to his prayer for the Ephesians. I keep asking that, that, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Well, that's a pretty good one. But look at this. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Paul is praying that the Ephesians will achieve some enlightenment. I pray, not I pray God would give you something. Not I pray God would bless you. I pray your eyes would be open to what you have. Not that you would get something. I pray your eyes would be open to what you have. And listen to what he says. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. I pray you would know your calling. Turn the person next to you and say, called. I pray your eyes would be open that you would know you are called. I pray you would know the hope to which he has called you and the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. In the first service I talked about what that phrase means. You could, we'll put the audio podcast up if you really suffer from insomnia, you could listen to it. Calling. And inheritance. Paul's summary for everything that comes to us as children of God, as yes to the gospel people, as followers of Jesus, we are called. Turn to the person next to you and say, hey, how's it going, called one? And now you know, say, say back to them, hey, thanks, Coldy. You, you are called. We are called. We, we, we as a group, we, we as a church, we have a calling, a corporate calling. We don't want to miss our calling. We need to have our eyes continually open. God, what are you calling us to as a church? Who could say amen to that? I hope you're keeping that in your prayer life for us. We, you know, planning in Darwin, sending missionaries to Timor, what, what, whatever we do, we do it because constantly our eyes are being enlightened and our eyes are being opened. Look at what God's calling us into. And how many people know God never lets you get comfy and happy with your calling does he you know what would be really great let's just have a group therapy session for a second is that okay um god doesn't take my advice in how to manage the universe anyone else like that want to join my therapy group god runs the universe however god wants and see, if I'm running the universe, I'm like, well, can't we just wait till everything's good and strong and sorted out and then I have everything I need and then I'm well and I'm comfortable and everything, all the, all the ducks are lined up and all the aces are in the spades or whatever. And then couldn't we have to step out and do something? And God says, that is not how it works. With calling, with inheritance, this word inheritance is wrapped up in the history of the people of Israel leaving Egypt and going into the promised land. 
a land flowing with milk and honey. They eventually went in. It was their inheritance. That's what the word means. The, 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 the going in and possessing the land. Did everyone who left Egypt see their inheritance? They did not. Did they not see their inheritance because God did not want them to see their inheritance? That is not what we are told. We are told that as a human, it is possible to go round and round in the wilderness, missing the inheritance. The inheritance always there, waiting to be inherited, waiting to be walked into, the land flowing with milk and honey. And it's always waiting for God's people to walk in. But here's the thing, God's people don't always walk into their inheritance. And before Freud or Jung or Maslow or Townsend or Cloud was the Exodus people who decided we can't go into that land. There are giants in there. And listen to this. And we are like grasshoppers in our own sight. I'll just go in, there's an inheritance. Well, but, but I don't have the belief. I, I don't think I can. I don't think we can. Well, then you can't. But Caleb and Joshua, they could. Because although they may have felt like grasshoppers in their own sight, they took their eyes off themselves and they put them on the one who called them and said, you have a calling, you have an inheritance. We have a calling, man. We, we have an inheritance. So it's not the topic of today's sermon, but have a look at the sample space of, 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 of what just this quick skim over says to us about what we have in the gospel and who we are as the people of God. The things of profound worth that God has given us, the, the profound value that we are gifted in Christ that we could easily squander, that we could easily devalue, that we could easily... Blow away. I, we have the right to be children of God, man. We have every spirit blessing. We, we have a divine calling. We have a rich inheritance in God's people. We have some amazing stuff at our disposal. But we have to decide, will I walk in my inheritance? Or will I blow it like a lottery winner? Will I booze it away? Will, will, will I distract myself with the pleasantries of the age? Will, will, will I just think, ah, oh, that, that, that old thing, that's been with me my whole life, that old birthright. Yeah, yeah, I know I'm called by God. Well, do you know? How many times in your life have you encountered a scripture and had your life changed? I know, I know. Oh, everyday possible. No. For most of us, actually, the truth is you've had very few life-changing moments in your life. You have had some, but you've only had a few. You've only had we don't have life-changing moments every day of the week. Um, and I know in churches like ours, like everything's life-changing, right? Go to the muffin sale, it's life-changing. Turn up to here, it's life-changing, life-changing, life-changing sermon, life-changing song, life-changing worship service. But, but in reality, not, not a lot of stuff changes, changes your life. And you sort of truck along and you do shift and, and you meander, but not everything is life-changing. But today I want to talk to you from a scripture that literally changed my life. I had been to church two or three times before my spiritual father, Wayne Alcorn, read and preached on this scripture. It changed my life. I haven't always been a pastor. I had money once upon a time. Once upon a time, I ran a business and I was a consultant and I could say yes to whatever I wanted to say yes to and no to whatever I wanted to say yes to, but now I'm a pastor. I could go where I want. I could take work wherever I want. If Daniel and I wanted holidays, we didn't ask anyone's permission. We just did what we wanted, man. It was so good. Now, now I'm a pastor. <laughs> um, back then, I wasn't a pastor. But as I had become a believer, I had this conviction, there's more to life than the money I'm making and the business I'm running. 
It's not that there is something inherently wrong with it. People in this room, you're called to your business. And the point is, if you're called to it, you do have to give it your focus. There's people in this room and you're called to your medical profession. There's people in this room, you're called to your teaching profession. You're called to your IT profession. You're called to your spreadsheeting. (sighs) Called to the military, maybe. Called to what your field of endeavor is. Called to being a janitor. Called to being a council worker. The thing is that we are assured of in the scripture is that there is a calling for us collectively and we have to inherit that. There's also a calling for us individually and we have to walk into it. So let me ask you a question. Do you know what your calling is? In this room, some people say, yeah, for sure. Good. And some people will say, no, I don't don't know. I'm wrestling with it. But the point is that one of the things that has to happen for each one of us is we have to say, what inheritance does God have for us collectively as a church? What are we called to? But then don't be too distracted because you have to answer the second question yourself. What am I called to? What is the inheritance God has for me? What am I supposed to be as a person, as a human, as a person with agency in this world, an image bearer to God, a yes to the gospel person? What am I supposed to be walking into? I am not for one moment suggesting leave your job and come and be a church pastor. Not unless God really needs to punish you for your sins should you do that job. Um, I'm not suggesting do what I do. I am suggesting do what God's called you to. Prioritise, strategize, prepare, structure, whatever God has called you to. Listen, friends, I've been a pastor for 15 years. You know how many people I've spoken to that knew what God called them to, knew the inheritance God had for them, but they blew it away because they never got around to it. Distraction, discouragement, disobedience, the three Ds. Let's not be DDDLC. It's easy to do. Time goes by like sands through the... seen who's willing to admit it. Pastor Wayne opened a scripture and that scripture changed my life because it called me to a sudden collision with the realities of what I was faced with in my life. I'd only been to church a few times by then and man, I tell you what, every time I heard a Christian preacher preach the gospel, it was like my eyes were getting open. I was like, how have I lived without this all, all of my life? How have I not known this? Why didn't they tell me this when I was 10? And every day we would, we would take notes in church. I know some of you have never thought about doing that, but you, you could think about it. Um, and, and we would, these days you can just screenshot slides, it's so easy. And we would take notes and in the car on the way home, you know, we'd talk about the preacher, but in a good way. And we would say, can you believe what he said? And we would make life-altering decisions in response to God's word. Those life-altering decisions added up, like step by step, step by step, step by step, which took us into the promised land of everything that God had for us, into our future. Imagine a person who was a hopeless, traumatized, depressed, shut-in, alcoholic, drug addict, becoming, I don't know, basically sane anyway, free, living, Imagine bringing children into a family where there was no violence and no abuse, safe structures. You know, God changed everything about our lives. But I can remember the day I had a collision with reality and it came from a scripture verse that I'm going to talk to you about today. It begins in Genesis chapter 25. Genesis chapter 25 is a turning point. Abraham, he had inherited this blessing, this call. You know, you will be a blessing to the nations. You'll restore God's rule and reign to planet Earth. The whole world's in chaos, but I'll make you into something. And you can share my blessing around. Well, Abraham, he does. He, he, he goes from being childless to a father of children. He, he establishes a tribe. He, Abraham becomes a king. And if you read the early chapters of Genesis, you know, before 25, Abraham's gone from basically being one old wanderer to a fairly significant tribal chieftain making treaties. He had wealth. He had riches. He had tents. He had cattle and camels and goats and money and power and literally was a kingdom, but it was nomadic. So it was a roving kingdom. It was incredible in one lifetime what God did with Abraham. 
And then Abraham died, but before he died, he passes the blessing on to his son. His son received his inheritance. His son, his son was given the birthright. His son was called into, now you're supposed to carry on what God has given me and passed on to me. You're supposed to keep doing it, man. God's going to use you. You're the channel of the next generation. So this is where our story begins with Isaac, his childless wife, which seems to be a thing in that family, getting pregnant. Look what happens, Genesis chapter 25. And we'll start from, let's see, we'll start from verse 21. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife. Always good for husbands to do that, by the way, because she was childless. And the Lord answered his prayer and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. Now, remember, this is before ultrasounds and scans and all sorts of stuff. So what happens? Well, the babies jostled each other within her. And she said, why is this happening to me? And so she didn't go and get an ultrasound. She went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you will be separated. One people stronger than the other. And the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, they were twin boys in her womb. And the first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. Just pause button. I don't do many hospital visits in our church. Our team kind of tends to look after those things. But every now and then, you meet someone who's just had a baby, and the child is hard to compliment. (laughs) What do you say in those moments? You walk into the hospital... And they have a child that is red all over and hairy like a garment. Remember, this is the ancient world. When they make garments, they make it out of very coarse woven materials, or more likely uh, what's been alluded to in this passage is goat or cow skin clothing. He looks like an old sheepskin rug, man. He's a goat skin rug. He's a cow. He's red and he's ruggy. What do you do when you turn up to visit that person in hospital? I asked posed the question to the previous service congregation and one insightful said, lady said, you look at it and you say, oh, how precious. It's better than my standard, which is, what an interesting child. He was <laughs> hairy like a garment. So they named him Esau. Obviously, Esau in Hebrew, Esau, it means hairy. So he's, he's hairy. <laughs> hey, Harry. Verse 26, after this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob, Jacob, and Jacob means to grasp. He was named Jacob, heel grasper. And Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. Okay, let's set it up. All right, here's the deal. They've got twins, right? Now, remember, Isaac is a king. He's inherited a kingdom from King Abraham, the tribal chieftain who has grown into a mighty force. Kings all around the area are making treaties with him and begging him, don't attack us or steal our land. That's how powerful he is. And Isaac has inherited this. You want to be Isaac's firstborn child. In the Old Testament, like the New Testament world, this thing about birthright goes to the firstborn. It goes to the first. Born, but the answer's ahead of time. Okay, I'm just checking if you're still awake, but since no one is. <sighs> Thank you, Adam Green. Goes to the firstborn. Now, this is how it happens, okay? The inheritance right goes to the firstborn. The firstborn inherits the influence. The firstborn will become the king. The firstborn will become the new tribal chieftain. His whole life, he will have privilege. His whole life, he will have influence. Because as soon as he is 11 or 12 years old, he will start getting um, practice command from his father. He will start throwing his weight around. He'll be in charge of stuff. The father will say, I don't need to deal with that. Let my firstborn deal with it. And he will be trained how to rule and reign on his father's behalf shoring up against the day when daddy's passed away that he's going to be in charge of everything rule number one of being the firstborn you get a life of privilege because you're going to be Charles in charge pretty soon sounds pretty cool well what happens when you have twins they don't break it in half man not in the ancient world what they do this is what they do whether it's twins or anyone else first one out if first come first serve baby that's what happens okay Now, how many people know people who you have a birthday near each other or maybe twins in the house and then you have this wonderful argument, respect your elders, I'm five minutes older than you. I was born the day before you, respect your elders. 
and we say that joke like on every birthday, I'm officially one year older than you today. You don't do that. Get friends, people. This is what happens, okay? There's, there's an irony being set up in the story because, man, these are twins. You know, twin, they're so close to being born at the same time. This is a photo finish. Who's going to come first? Whichever one comes out first gets to be Charles in charge. Whichever one comes out last. Though they shared the same womb. They were like peas and carrots, man. They're like yin and yang in there. And what happens? But one's going to come out first and first one. First come, first serve. You better get out quick. You better... Complain to placenta management if you're not happy with the decisions. You, you, better, you better call womb service if you're not happy with what's going on because you want to be the first one out there. You want to be the firstborn. And so what happens, the first baby comes out and he is red and he is hairy like a garment. doesn't matter. What a weird child. What a weird description. Have you heard one? Have you seen that on someone's birth certificate before? But they don't toss aside the weird-looking child because the weird-looking child is the firstborn. But his brother... In a narrated scene where you would only expect Sigourney Weaver to come in and shoot something, his brother sticks his arm out and grabs his other brother by the head. Get back in here. I'm clawing my way to the top, baby. You're not getting out first. No way. Not before me. We've served this whole time. I'm not going to be missing out. And it sets up, as you know in the, in the story, almost this prophetic harbinger of exactly what the future is going to be like between these two brothers. A struggle for a birthright. One arrives just on time. The other one, hanging on with all of his might. It's not going to be that easy for you, pal. Well, why is it a problem to be the second born or the fifth or the sixth or the seventh born? Simple, because you don't get the influence the firstborn has. The firstborn's in charge. They start telling you what to do. How many people have firstborns in their house? Remember how bossy firstborns are? Imagine if they had a title to go with it. Well, what about the money? Well, so, okay, the firstborn inherits the rule and reign, inherits the kingdom, gets in charge of the family, tells everybody what to do. That's why Joseph's brothers got annoyed with him. One of the younger ones telling everybody, I'm going to be in charge. No, it's not done that way. But then secondly as well, when, when the inheritance comes, the wealth will one day be divided up into the children's lives. And the father can do it when he dies, but he can also do it before he dies in preparation for his death so that he can like retire peacefully and they'll run everything and just look after him. Sounds good if you ask me. So what happens is well, the father comes and he says, how many children I've got? In this story, we've got two children, Jacob and Esau. We've got two children. Well, how do we divide the inheritance up? This is what we do. We take all of our riches, all of our wealth. We calculate all of our property, all of our material assets, and we divide them in three. Well, why do you divide them in three? There's only two kids. No, but the firstborn gets a double portion. You divide it up in three, and the firstborn gets two shares. The, the, the nextborn gets one share. If you have seven children, you divide it in eight, and the firstborn gets two eighths, and everybody else gets one eighth. If you have 20 kids, well, by then, as you, the more, you know, they had a lot of kids sometimes back in those days, the more, the more kids you get in the family, the less meaningful the difference is. But when there's only two of you, my brother's going to be in charge, and for the rest of my days, I'll be bound by his decisions. He'll be the tribal chieftain. He'll be Charles in charge. And not only that, he has two-thirds more finance than I do just as a lottery ticket that says, congratulations, you came out of the womb first. It's setting something up in the story. It's setting up an irony. It's setting up a contention. It's setting up this thing. One will come into his birthright and the other is grabbing the heel. Wait a minute, that's something valuable. And this story offers us a little mirror in front of our face saying... Do you also realise you have a valuable birthright? Do you also realise you've been given something of profound value and not because of the way you were born naturally into this world, but because of the way that you can be born supernaturally into this world of the Spirit of God? And you in Christ have a birthright. And the question is, what will you do with the birthright you've been given? Well, the story takes us further into a journey. And here's where the story takes us. Look, it's in Genesis chapter 25, and this will be from verse 27. It jumps, okay? They've been born good. The boys grew up. If you're a parent out there, just imagine the way the Bible always does stuff like this. They went from being babies to they grew up. There's a lot of stuff that doesn't get talked about. Encourage yourself in the Lord. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Listen to what's being set up. 
Esau is one type of guy. Jacob is another type of guy. Esau, he grew up and he became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country. While Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Well, look what happens. He, he, he's one type of guy. He, he's another type of guy. The only way to set this up properly is to ask you, do you ever know of any inner city hipster Melbourneites? This is one of my favourite memes, is the way that, that hipsters dress up as lumberjacks, although at the end of the day, I'm so glad I don't have to actually hunt. I have no clue where gluten-free tacos live. <laughs> And there's this kind of like, you know, inner city urbanite, they dress like lumberjacks but have never held an axe and they moisturise their fingers and all sorts of stuff, okay? But then there's this other tribe. There's these other men of the field. Who, who loves the show Meat Eater on Netflix? I love this show. I, I, I personally, I like being at home among the tents, but I like hunting as well. So I'm a kind of a blend of Jacob and Esau. Um, weird looking and not rich. Yeah, that's a good mixture. Uh, Stephen Ranella from Meat Eater, you know, he goes out and he'll, in any environment, hunt and gather food and eat it. And he gets all these guests on his shows and they go off to the wilderness doing all these manly, manly hunting things. And, and, and if you don't know of him, then you possibly might have heard of two of the most alpha males on the face of the planet right now, Jocko Willink and Joe Rogan. And then what's even funnier is both of them got together and did a podcast about the time they went hunting together. And so there's this kind of like two characters set up in the story. There's, there, there's, like, there's like the urban hipster that likes to stay amongst the tents and then there's like the Jocko Willink man of the field in the story, okay? Watch what happens. The boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Now watch what happens. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game. Everybody say a taste. Everybody say an appetite. He had a, an appetite. He, he had a taste for wild game. Listen, Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau. But Rebekah loved Jacob. One of the worst things you can read in a family is the sibling rivalry where mummy and daddy both love someone more than the other. Isaac has a taste for wild game. So he loves Esau, the man of the open field, the skillful hunter. He has a taste. Actually, in the Hebrew, this passage actually says the taste of, the, the taste of wild game was in his mouth. Esau, Esau, the taste of wild game was in his mouth. So, sorry, Isaac. So he loved Esau. He had a taste, man. He had an appetite. And that appetite governed the way he ruled his family. He liked the son that was the man of the bush. But Rebekah... She loved Jacob. Jacob stayed home among the tents. And this, this classic setup of the urbanite and the wilderness man. I told you that the title of today's message is Don't Squander Your Birthright. I think it really should be called this. Appetites Threaten Birthrights. In the story, we're being led on a journey, and the journey starts with Father Isaac, who has a certain type of taste. And he divides his family along the lines of that certain type of taste. And what he does is he shows his children a pattern that will become a bit of a problem later on, which is you can live your life by principle and priority and values and strategy, or you can live your life just pursuing the tastes you have. And so we should be careful because appetites threaten birthrights. Actually, what we love... What we long for, what we yearn for, shapes us and determines our destiny. Your appetites, what you love, the taste in your mouth, the stuff that you pursue, it shapes your character. And collectively, it determines your destiny. And friends, we should not be blind to this truth because all biblical biographies are illustrations of character and destiny determined by lovings, longings, and yearnings. Appetites threaten birthrights. 
If we had time, we could talk about this guy, Samson, whose appetite for wine and women and song ended up with him getting a flat top like Tom Cruise and being powerless among many other things. We could talk about this guy who was given an incredible birthright, bequeathed by God as the king of a nation, but in a time when kings went to war, decided his appetite kept him home. And then wouldn't you know it, he developed another appetite when he was on the roof watching Bathsheba take a bath. Appetites threaten birthrights. We could learn from this story. The story of the Jesus who would never allow his appetite to threaten his birthright. If you're the son of God, turn this stone into bread. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Oh, Father, not my will, but yours be done. A saviour who gave us our very birthright because he would not allow it to be threatened by an appetite. Appetites threaten birthrights. Now, it's not fair in the story to pit these two brothers against each other as if it's like, you know, the, the manly man versus the metrosexual male. It's really not fair. Uh, Esau grew up and became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. I want you to think about this. This is a nomadic culture of thousands before Christ. In a nomadic culture, what you do is you live in tents and you seasonally move around and you gather towards you herds of camels and donkeys and horses and goats and sheep and anything you can eat. You, you, you gather those things towards you, your source of meat, and you move around and you put down the tent and you put it up here and you bring the flock with you. And why you do that is because you camp itinerantly around all the places where the animals can eat and the animals can drink. And that governs, that rhythm of animal foraging governs your lifestyle. And I'll tell you why. So that calendar year by calendar year, you have a reliable source of food. You can be fed. Your family can be fed. Because if you turn up at the right time, at the right place, with the right food, all the animals will follow you there. And then when you're hungry, you eat one. Livestock keeping. It's what changed us from being a hunter-gatherer society, subsistence, very unhealthy. This created a leap forward in human history, going from being hunter-gatherers to a nomadic pastoralist. And so Jacob's not really the namby-pamby, mild-mannered wussy guy who just likes to stay home at the tent. What it's really saying, he was at home among the tents. He embraced the nomadic lifestyle day after day, day after day. He's feeding the animals, watering the animals, putting up the tents, packing down the tents. He's doing the work that his father and his grandfather's kingdom was moved forward on the nomadic lifestyle. Pitch our tents, feed our animals, eat our animals, milk our cows, milk our camels, sell some, trade them, build a family. He has his day-by-day nomadic labor. That's what the passage really means. It's not presenting him as a, as a weakling or the hipster urbanite. It's presenting him as he's the one who actually was content. He was content among the tents. He, he, was, he was okay with making sure that he just step by step looked after the family business. But Harry, Harry ain't content, man. Harry became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country. Now, you have to understand there's some irony set up in this because Esau is producing. Esau is chasing. Esau is pursuing something he's not made for, he's not designed for. The kingdom wasn't built on it. The kingdom will never be built on it. It will undermine and threaten everything the kingdom's about because this is what hunting is. And I actually enjoy hunting. So I say this empathically as an enthusiastic person who just thinks there's nothing more rewarding than shooting something and grilling it on my hot plate feeding it to my family and friends. Sorry if you're vegan. Um, this is what hunters did in the, nomadic, in the nomadic world. They leave the family, they leave the tribe, they leave the tents, they leave the clans, and they go away where no one else is. They're gone bush, they're gone walkabout, they're going off, and there's no one else there. And in a collectivist society, that is risky. You're on your own. You don't have your team. You don't have your band of brothers. You don't have supply. And of course, the nomadic lifestyle was invented, so we didn't have to hunt anymore. Let's make it so the animals come to us and we eat them. Otherwise, what have I got to do? I've got to sneak through the bush with a weapon and try to find an animal that won't run away from me. And with my primitive you know, Stone Age weapons or Bronze Age weapons or Iron Age weapons sneak up on them close stealthily enough so that I can hack one and then hopefully bring it back to camp and eat it. It's a risky enterprise. 
Jacob is content. He, he stays home and, and does the family business. Esau, he, he's restless. Esau is a wanderer. You know, the hard work, the predictability, the setting up the tents and the packing down the tents, you know, like, like, like the, the watering the animals and the feeding the animals, that's not good enough for Esau. He, for some reason, and his dad is the one that put the idea in his, his dad has a taste for hunting. His dad likes to get out away from everybody. His dad likes to go off and pursue something else. And then he raises a son, and fortunately, one son's caring about the father's business. And one son is wandering away in a culture where you don't wander away. You understand? It's a great tale here. This is a tale of a hunter in a nomadic world, not a hunter in a hunting world. He had a taste for wild game. His daddy had a taste for wild game. He's off the reservation. And exactly at this point in time is where any good filmmaker would insert the music. Boom, 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 boom. The suspense has been built up. Well, look what happens. Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, see, Jacob's at home, he's doing the hunter-gatherer thing, he's content with the nomadic lifestyle, he's doing his, what we do when we live in tents, we don't go around chasing animals, that's inefficient, that's silly, we let the animals come to us, then we eat them. When Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. Everybody say the word famished. Famished. Famished, it's a mixture of this word. You might like to think of it of starvation, but you've got to think of it with a little bit more emotional content. This is about weariness. This is about like, I'm not just hungry, but I am bone tired. I'm like at the end of myself. I'm at the end of my resources. I'm famished. He, he, Jacob's home doing what he's supposed to be doing. He's doing the kingdom business. He's running the tribe. He's doing, but the guy with the birthright is off the reservation. And man, he has gotten himself hungry. You know when a hunter comes home hungry, do you know what that means? They're an unsuccessful hunter. The amount of times Daniel has packed me up in my four-wheel drive and said, bring home dinner. And I have come home a failure without having hunted and gathered anything successfully. Didn't even, what, didn't even have the time to go to the butcher and grab something and pretend, at least rebag it and pretend I shot it. And I have to ask her, hey, babe, will you go to Woolies and get some steaks? Returning home a failure. <laughs> Um, he came in from the country and famished. And listen to this. He said to Jacob, quick, let me eat some of that red stew. I'm famished. And that is why he was also called Edom. And Jacob replied, first sell me your... Bur- oh, okay. You, this is like a whiplash jarring moment. The value of the birthright in the ancient world to even utter the phrase, sell me your birthright, was a sociological, phenomenological, anthropological impossibility. You can't transfer birthright in the ancient world. You're born with it. First, sell me your birthright then. Look, says Esau, I'm about to die. What good is the birthright to me? Man, anyone in the ancient world reading this would have heart fail. What good is the birthright to me? And think about the idiocy of this statement. You're, you're the firstborn. You're the firstborn. For starters, there's some questions. Number one, why is Jacob cooking stew? They're rich. They have cattle. They have servants. Why aren't the servants cooking? I don't know. Jacob likes cooking. And he saw walks in. And fair enough, he's been off the reservation. He's been pursuing something, something stupid, something inefficient, something that doesn't move the kingdom work ahead. He probably shouldn't be doing it in the first place. But hey, whatever floats your boat, he saw, go out and do it. But he comes back and he's starving. And he comes up to his brother in a household of servants where there's a myriad different ways to appropriately meet his dietary needs. He finds his brother and says, I'm starving. Give me what you're cooking. And the brother says, well, first sell me your birthright. Grasping at the heel. This is my chance to pull him back and get ahead, man. Sell me your birthright. And Esau says, sorry, um, I'm going to die. What is that birthright to me? Then listen, but Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and lentil stew. A man with a taste A man with an appetite for wild game just sold his birthright for lentil stew. Could this be the very first time in history someone was undone by vegan cooking? (laughs) The story is setting up some ironies that we should ask ourselves about. It says this, Esau despised 
despised his birthright. He de- I'll just settle for a bowl of stew. You, you, you're making a sweet vegan dish, even though I'm a carnivorous meat eater? Cool. Have my whole birthright for it. See the stupidity. See the irony of the story. It's, the, what you're getting is not worth what you're giving. You, you, you've got a momentary thing. It'll meet your appetite for a moment and then be gone. You'll, you'll, you'll gobble it down and it'll be over. But your birthright, you can never get back. Your birthright is forever compromised. He despised his birthright. This is the word borzor, Hebrew word borzor. And it means this, to degrade, to subtract value, to lower the status of depreciation. Looking down on something as contemptible. I think in our culture, the best way to explain the Hebrew word borzor is that when you have these conversations with your teenagers and they almost get, snap their neck by giving you an eye roll. Have you ever had that before? Or maybe you remember the famous Angela Merkel being caught in a discussion with Vladimir Putin and she on camera just did this epic eye roll. It's a very famous thing. Um, To hold something in contempt. Now listen, we have a birthright. You have the right to be a child of God. I know. I roll. Careful, Esau. I wouldn't roll my eyes at your birthright if I was you. You just might lose it. You just might squander it. Remember? Appetites threaten birthrights. What we love, what we long for, what we yearn for shapes us and our destiny. In the story, the word red stew, it's, it's, it's fascinating. In the Hebrew, I think I've got it here for you somewhere. Where are we? Where are we? Where are we? In the Hebrew, the word for red stew, feed me this red stew. The word for this red stew is min ha'adam ha'adam hazeh. And ha'adam ha'adam is red. So it's like saying, give me this red, red stuff. And hazeh means stuff. It doesn't mean stew. The, the interpretation, give me this red stew, is not exactly what he says. What he says is, I'm starving. Give me this red, red stuff. It's like this. Look at it. It's just stuff. It's just stuff. It's indescribable red mush that because I'm hungry now I want it but I don't realise it's just red red stuff it doesn't even have a name calling it lentil stew is a compliment it's red red stuff give me some of this min ha'adam ha'adam give me some of this red red stuff I don't even know what it is, but it meets my passing appetite in the moment because I'm a wanderer that's made myself hungry by being off doing stuff I'm not even supposed to be doing because I've got my birthright, baby. And until I live according to the birthright, and then I'll be at home where the stew is getting cooked and I'll be fed by the people in the house so I won't have to trade my birthright for a meal to meet my starvation. But I'm hungry because I've been wandering, so I'm starving. And when I'm starving and when I'm hungry and when I've been wandering, I'm also desperate. And my appetite becomes all-consuming. And it will threaten my birthright. And I'll trade everything for a bowl of red stuff. Everything for a bowl of red stuff. So significant is this story that when Esau, Harry, exchanges his birthright for a bowl of ha'adam ha'adam. His name becomes Adam. You know what Adam means? You take the word Adam, which means red, and you change it to Edom, and it means red sauce. Esau's appetite for red stuff created someone whose identity was now characterized by what he fed on. Red stuff? Well, your name's now Red Sauce. He went from being hairy to ready. Hey, ready? The rest of his days, known as the man who craved after red stuff. Because, friends, appetites threaten birthrights. So here's the question that changed my life 20 years ago. What appetites, what hungers and yearnings and longings in my life are really just red stuff? I was doing all sorts of crazy things and partying and snorting and drinking. I was earning money, spending money, blowing money, 
coming up with crazy money spending schemes with status symbols, wanting to get a nice car and Danielle's having conniptions because at the end of the day, ignorant and not pursuing my birthright, I was willing to just eat whatever met my needs at the time. And this scripture opened my eyes to what had been a lifelong pattern. Hungers and yearnings and longings meeting with red stuff. Here's another question. What do you feel starved of? What has been making you weary? So weary you're starved. So weary you're famished. Is it it possible you're burning yourself out going off God's reservation for your life? Is it possible you're distracting yourself? Is it possible you're discouraged? Is it possible you're being disobedient? You're off the reservation, pursuing something, but God's got kingdom work for you. God's got an inheritance for you. God's got a birthright for you. I found we have to be aware of our human danger zones. Use the acronym BLAST. Whenever you're bored, lonely, angry, stressed, tired, that's what Esau was. I'm empty. I'm empty, so I'll switch it for anything. I'm weary, so just make me feel good right now. Forget the long-term consequences. Okay, but you'll be forever known by what you trade your birthright for. Well, that's a good question, isn't it? What do you want to be known for? I might not know. Your person next to you in the row might not know, but God knows. You know what motivates me? I'm going to stand before the judgment seat of Jesus one day. And according to the New Testament, not the Old Testament, according to the New Testament, I'm going to give an account for the things done in my body. I'm going to give an account for my work. In Revelation, we get the picture of some going before the throne and being told, well done, good and faithful servant. Man, I want to hear those words. Man, I want, to, I, I want a family that doesn't go off the reservation and, and, and to raise kids that learn to eat red stuff, but a family raised in kingdom business, don't you? Are you selling your birthright for a bowl of red stuff? Today's a great day to draw a line in the sand of your life and say, man, I've got to cut that out. I've got to reprioritize. I've got to get back into the tribe, not off out wandering alone in the wilderness. I've got to start eating the proper stew, not this lentil, lentil vegan birth replacement stuff. Listen to what the author to the Hebrews said. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or godless like Esau. Listen to that phrase. No one is sexually immoral or godless like Esau. Well, we don't get told Esau was sexually immoral. But in Greek, it's the word pornos. And pornos means to to engage the work of a prostitute. And there's a bit of Bible code going on in this passage because really, pornos, prostitution, adultery, sexual immorality was always what the Old Testament prophets accused Israel of when they chased idols instead of worshipping Yahweh. God is your husband and now you're cheating on Him. And so really what the author to the Hebrews is saying is that when Esau sold his birthright, what he was really doing is he was committing adultery because he was worshipping something created instead of pursuing the will of the Creator. And that's why it says, see to it that no one's sexually immoral like Esau. Don't, don't do what Esau did. Don't commit idolatry and worship something else. Follow God. Who for a single meal sold his inheritance, right? Says the eldest son. And afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit his blessing, he was rejected, even though he sought the blessing with tears. He could not change what he had done. Well, it's too late for him. It's not too late for you. It's not too late for us. We today get to heed the wisdom of, of the book of Hebrews. And understand, we've got a warning from heaven to pursue our birthright, to pursue our calling. Yes, as a church, but what about you as a person? You know, Paul wrote to the Romans 
In this moment in time, you are lucky. God is giving you gracious kindness that's supposed to lead you to repentance. But he says, but if you don't do it, you're storing something else up for that day when you stand before Jesus and you'll receive judgment for everything done in the body. I'm not trying to scare you. You know I believe in grace. But we have a birthright, friends, as the people of God. I wouldn't love anyone if I didn't warn you. Eternity, one day we'll be there, standing before the throne, giving an account for what we've done. Wouldn't it be great if we were an army of people that said, then I'm going to make my life count for the kingdom. I'm going to pursue my calling. I'm going to pursue God. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes all over this room today? I want to finish by praying for you. You know when I preach, I can make you laugh or cry. I can definitely make you sleep. Today, I want to make you ask a question. And I can't make you ask it. So I want to invite you to join me in this question. Are you pursuing the birthright that God has for you with everything you've got? Keep going. Keep going. Are you distracted and off in the wilderness and off the reservation? Come home. Come home. It's not too late. Oh, my hunger. Oh, my drive. Just come back and eat the family meal. Don't sell your birthright for it. You can have it. Are you weary? Are you weak? Oh, be careful if you are. Be careful if you're tired. Be careful if you're weary. Be careful if you're grieving. Be careful if you're weak. You might just about eat anything in that condition, but man, you don't want that to be something that defines your future. If you're weak or weary, no one's judging, no one's criticizing, but that's the time to do what Jesus said. Hey, are you weary? Are you burdened? Come to me. Take my yoke upon your shoulders. I'll give you rest. Go to the right source when you're in trouble. I pray for you. No matter where you are, no matter what you're doing, I pray God's call. I pray God's inheritance. I pray your birthright would ring loud in your ears, my brother, my sister. Don't squander your birthright. Pursue everything that God has for you. I pray for the grace of God to surround your life today. I pray for the goodness of God to surround. I pray that this word, this text, this scripture would get inside you and stoke an ache and a yearning and a hunger, not for bowls of red, red stuff, but to pursue the call of God with faithfulness and energy and integrity in your work, in your rest, in your play, that you would do the work of your father. You would be about your father's business. I pray your appetites would be reined in by God's Word and the grace of God's Spirit. I pray that you would have the strength to say no to the stuff you've been gobbling up that you shouldn't be. I pray God would free you and bring you into a future. I pray you would have, if you need it, I pray you would have what I had 20 years ago when I was confronted with this passage. A light bulb moment that changes everything in the way you pursue your life pray for you in Jesus mighty mighty name I pray you'd say yes to God